Hello, and welcome back to Responding To, the podcast that aims to respond to projected questions old white dudes might have about gender and sexuality. I'm Lane, a non-binary, transgender, queer person with a master's in women and gender studies. This episode, I will be responding to listener Mike, who requested that I talk a bit more in depth about what I mean when I say violence, and also about microaggressions. First, let me say that I think this is a great topic to cover, because I know that violence circulates in a few ways, and I don't often slow down to explain exactly what I mean when I'm using that word. So I'm glad Mike asked. Secondly, let me say that because I'm going to be addressing the topic of violence, some parts of this episode may be hard to listen to, especially if you're someone with one or multiple marginalized identities, so please take care of yourself. So, my guess is that we're all pretty familiar with the definition of violence that pertains to physical harm, i.e. when someone does something that directly damages or hurts someone or something else physically. Um, And that is a definition of violence that does, unfortunately, pertain to the topics of gender and sexuality. For example, when we consider the epidemic of murders of trans women and femmes of color, very often black trans women and femmes, that we are currently experiencing in this country. Uh, And I'll take this as an opportunity to put this out there into the universe. Stop killing trans women and femmes of color and black trans women and femmes. Please spread the word. Seriously, this is a crisis on a deeply frightening scale. There is another way that violence circulates that isn't as directly physical as it is mental and or emotional. And so, because Mike specifically asked, and because it's a good starting point, let's dive into the concept of microaggressions uh, with a definition from our good friends over at Merriam-Webster. Quote, A comment or action that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude toward a member of a marginalized group. End quote. So, let's pick apart this definition a a little bit to understand it. First, a microaggression is a comment or action that expresses a prejudiced attitude toward a marginalized group. So that feels simple enough. Saying something or doing something that demonstrates prejudice toward a marginalized group. And as the preface micro might imply, a microaggression is, quote, subtle. And I don't really know of a scale to measure when something transitions from a microaggression to just plain aggression or a macroaggression, say, uh, but that subtlety is a part of the micro aspect, and we'll come back to that in a bit. The last thing I want to touch on here is the, quote, unconscious or unintentional part of the definition. So this is kind of tricky because what I think this refers to is all of our hegemonic indoctrination, by which I mean the intense degree to which mainstream society's values, beliefs, and systems are deeply ingrained in us from day one. And since if you live in the U.S., you live in a white supremacist capitalist patriarchy, those societal values, beliefs, and systems are more often than not oppressive in nature. And you know, you may be working very hard to unlearn that indoctrination, but it is so much a part of you that there are very likely many habits you have or things you say or ways you might think that you don't even realize are a part of this hegemonic indoctrination. And thus, those ingrained oppressive habits, thoughts, opinions, actions, etc. represent, quote, a comment or action that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude toward a marginalized group. And it's important to recognize that even if you are the only witness to these thoughts, actions, habits, etc., they are still expressing a prejudiced attitude toward a marginalized group, and it's you who is being affected by your own thoughts, behaviors, language, patterns, etc. 
So I know that I said I was going to come back to the subtlety aspect of the definition of microaggression, and believe me, I am. But now that we've sort of picked apart the definition in general, I think the most helpful thing to do next would be to talk about some examples. So let's talk about one that I've already discussed in previous episodes on the podcast because it is so pervasive. The example that I'm thinking of is when people are meaning to use the word or describe the state of being cisgender, but instead they use the word biological or natural or some other synonym. So a full sentence example of this microaggression in action is biological men should not be allowed to make legislative decisions about abortions or Natural men should not be allowed to make legislative decisions about abortions. Now, while I agree with the sentiment, um, thanks to episode 12, we know that the way to correct this microaggression would be to say that cisgender men should not be allowed to make legislative decisions about abortions. So again, great sentiment, wrong usage of language, which does ultimately express a an unintentional or unconscious prejudiced attitude toward a marginalized group. But so if you change natural or biological to cisgender, then you've got a great sentiment and the right language. Uh, And what we know about the use of biological or natural or some other synonym for these words, which are linked to the societal value of capital T truth and capital R reality of science and the natural world. So when we use those words instead of cisgender, we quote, subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally express a prejudiced attitude toward transgender, gender nonconforming, or gender expansive folks. Because it implies that any gender identity or experience besides cisgender is not, quote, natural or is somehow less, quote, real or truthful. So while this is perhaps not the same level of aggression as hate speech or a physically violent act, it is still oppressive and harmful to the marginalized community in question, in this case trans, gender nonconforming, and gender expansive folks, because it continues a narrative of gender identities besides cisgender as inferior, unnatural, not real, etc., which is ultimately thinking that supports hate speech and physically violent acts towards people who aren't cisgender. I'll give you one more example of a microaggression and then I'm going to move on because there are a million examples out there and if you're interested in learning more, I encourage you to use that fancy tool many of us have at our disposal called Google. I'm sure if you search examples of microaggressions, all sorts of things will avail themselves to you. Okay, so the next and final example of a microaggression I'm going to give is when someone who is not white or not coded as white is asked where they are from. And I don't just mean in the innocent, are you from Northern California or Southern California type of where are you from? I mean the insistent and insidious type of where are you from that pushes even after someone says they are from Sacramento or Boise and the response is, no, but where are you from? This has the effect of implying that anyone who is not white cannot actually be from the U.S. originally, which, if you think about it, is pretty ridiculous considering that the vast majority of white folks are not originally from the U.S., but came here thanks to colonization, and so actually the vast majority of people who are indigenous to this land are people of color. But anyway, I digress. So when someone who is not white or not coded as white is asked where they are from with the underlying assumption and implication that they are not from the U.S., that is, quote, a comment that subtly and often unconsciously or unintentionally expresses a prejudiced attitude toward indigenous folks, black folks, and folks of color. Again, this is perhaps not the same level of aggression as outright hate speech, 
speech or a physically violent act, though I'm not actually sure how to rank acts of prejudice or if that's really helpful. But either way, this example is still oppressive and harmful and furthers the work of white supremacy that is already rampant in this country. Because it implies that anyone who is not white is an outsider or is, quote, foreign, and that's not only factually incorrect, but it also continues an insidious link between skin color and entitlement to this land that colonization very, very intentionally put in place. Just in case you need a reminder, this is not white people's land. We stole it, and since we stole it, we've been violently trying to erase that fact from history. All right, now I'd like to zoom us out from our focus on microaggressions to a bit more of a general focus on violence, but still not all the way zoomed out to the whole definition of violence, because again, I'm going to go ahead and assume that we are familiar with violence in the physical sense. So I'm still focusing on non-physical or non-directly physical violence. I say non-directly physical because these forms of violence that I'm about to talk about can still have physical effects, but um, the violence itself does not happen at a physical level initially. So microaggressions are one example of non-physical violence. Hate speech is another example. And I might say that hate speech and microaggressions differ on the basis of intent and the level of prejudice. This feels a little tricky because I think there are some things that might fall in a gray area between hate speech and microaggressions or maybe an overlapping space because they are still very hateful, even if the person saying them may not quite consciously realize it. Uh, But there are certainly some words or phrases that I think are widely known to be extremely hateful based on their historical meaning and the feelings of the general community slash identity they are wielded against. I'm not going to name any of these words here because I don't think that the possible benefit of the clarity of naming them would be worth the harm they may inflict on marginalized listeners. But if you really don't know what I'm talking about, I'm sure, again, Google can help you out with examples of hate speech. Beyond hate speech and microaggressions, there are bureaucratic forms of violence, like the example I gave in episode 16, in which the elections committee at my university publicly published my legal name when they announced my candidacy for vice president, despite my repeated requests that they not do so. This action caused me pain and suffering in the sense that it added to my anxiety, it challenged my sense of self-worth and autonomy over my own identity and the information attached to it, just to name a couple of ways. Um, Another example of bureaucratic violence might be the refusal of an insurance company to cover a trans-related surgery, claiming that it is not, quote, medically necessary. This unfortunately happens all too often, and it invalidates trans identity, feelings of autonomy over one's body and identity, and it shores up the barriers around the medical industrial complex and its hierarchy of what is important and what is not. Um, Another example of bureaucratic violence might be someone losing their job uh, because they are not straight. Um, not taking consent or lack of consent seriously is a form of violence. Um, misogyny is a form of violence. Racism, homophobia, transphobia, ableism, fatphobia, all of the phobias and isms are forms of violence. Uh, it's kind of tricky to fully outline or define violence in all of its senses, at least in all of the ways that I use it and other people use it. But it might be summarized as any action or comment that denies someone access to full personhood and or causes someone pain, be it mental, emotional, spiritual, physical, or some combination thereof. And again, this is tricky, right? Because sometimes, for example, the expression of a necessary boundary causes pain or a mistaken or forgotten meeting causes pain. I say this to say sometimes we have no choice but to but to enact violence, because sometimes in order to do what we need to do for ourselves, it means that someone else experiences harm or pain of some sort. And 
that's rough to come to terms with. Um, however, I do think there is a lot of unnecessary violence we cause that we could seriously decrease by examining our ingrained thought processes, habits, language choices, etc., and by listening. When someone, especially someone of a marginalized identity or experience, tells you that you're causing them harm, listen. I know this is way easier said than done, and defensiveness is real and hard to put aside. Trust me, I know. But <laughs> all I have to say to you is you gotta do your best to put it aside, because we can learn so much about how not to hurt each other from our mistakes and the education people sometimes offer us in response to them. Okay, so I'm going to finish up by bringing us back to the subtlety aspect of the definition of microaggression for a second. I want to point us again to the white supremacist capitalist patriarchy that we live under here in the United States. And to say that, if you are someone who benefits from this these systems of oppression, and if you are white, you do, and if you are a white cisgender heterosexual man, you especially do, and these are not the only people, but these are the um, identities that I'll name for the purposes of our episode, <laughs> um, not putting in work to unlearn the ingrained harmful behaviors, thought processes, and language that you engage in could be called subtle, but it could also be called extra insidious because this system that privileges some while directly oppressing others can only continue to exist in this way as long as it goes unchallenged. So by not challenging it whenever it pops up in your life insofar as you are able to recognize it, and by not putting in work to make that recognition possible for yourself, you are directly allowing this system to continue. And I might argue that really isn't subtle at all. If you think white supremacy is wrong, if you think patriarchy is wrong, if you think the exploitation of the many in order to privilege the few, aka capitalism, is wrong, but you aren't looking for the ways your everyday behaviors, thought processes, and language replicate these systems and then actively working to change those habits, you are directly, not subtly, contributing to the continuation of these systems. We all need to push against them, but we most especially need those in power, aka white cisgender heterosexual men, to put in that work. Y'all have a strategic position and probably more power than you realize. Use it. Okay, moving on to the recommendation segment. This episode's recommendation is the Transgender, Gender Variant, and Intersex Justice Project, or TGIJP. TGIJP is a group of transgender, gender variant, and intersex people inside and outside of prisons, jails, and detention centers, creating a united family in the struggle for survival and freedom. I'm going to suggest that you support them in their very important work to counteract the violence of the prison industrial complex by making a donation and or volunteering. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, there are a multitude of ways to volunteer with them. And one that I'm going to highlight is called Mail Night. That's M-A-I-L as in the post office. And it's every Tuesday from 4 to 6 p.m. And volunteers come together to respond to letters from folks who are currently incarcerated. I'm going to put a link to their donation page and a link to their volunteer page in the show description and on the blog. Please consider donating and or volunteering if you are able to. 
All right. I think that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to make a sustaining monthly donation to the podcast on Patreon, I'd be super grateful. Even a donation of a dollar a month would honestly mean so much. Um, genuinely, no amount is insignificant. Uh, you can find that at patreon.com slash responding to, and I'll put the link in the podcast description and on the blog. If you can't make a donation, but would still like to support me, please leave me a rating and or a review wherever you're listening to this. That would be super helpful. Oh, and one more thing you can do to support me is sharing the podcast either on your social media or telling your friends about it or sharing it in whatever way occurs to you that I have not thought of. (laughs) Um, Okay, enough about supporting me though. If you'd like to get more connected to the podcast, you can check out the blog. It's responding the number two old white dudes questions about gender sexuality dot home dot blog. I'm going to put a link to it in the podcast description. Um, You can submit questions or comments on the blog by clicking got a question or comment at the top of the page. Uh, You can also email me your questions at responding to oldwhitedudes at gmail.com, all written out, no numbers or different spellings or anything like that. Uh, You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Feel free to tweet me your questions. The account is responding to dot dot dot, just like the podcast title, and the handle is at T-O underscore responding. Also, let me remind any listeners with questions that you do not have to be an old cisgender heterosexual white dude to ask a question. Thanks again for listening to episode 17 of Responding To, the podcast that aims to respond to projected questions old white dudes might have about gender and sexuality. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode and have a great rest of your day.